Chapter 9 of Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. Chapter 9 Codes and Their Enemies. Anyone who has stood at the end of a railroad platform waiting for a friend will recall what queer people he mistook for him. The shape of a hat, a slightly characteristic gait, evoked the vivid image in his mind's eye. In sleep, a tinkle may sound like the pealing of a great bell, the distant stroke of a hammer like a thunderclap. For our constellations of imagery will vibrate to a stimulus that is perhaps but vaguely similar to some aspect of them. They may, in hallucination, flood the whole consciousness. They may enter very little into perception, though I am inclined to think that such an experience is extremely rare and highly sophisticated, as when we gaze blankly at a familiar word or object, and it gradually ceases to be familiar. Certainly for the most part, the way we see things is a combination of what is there and of what we expected to find. The heavens are not the same to an astronomer as to a pair of lovers, a page of Kant will start a different train of thought in a Kantian and in a radical empiricist. The Tahitian Bell is a better-looking person to her Tahitian suitor than to the readers of the National Geographic magazine. Expertness in any subject is, in fact, a multiplication of the number of aspects we are prepared to discover, plus the habit of discounting our expectations. Where to the ignoramus all things look alike, and life is just one thing after another, to the specialist, things are highly individual. For a chauffeur, an epicure, a connoisseur, a member of the president's cabinet, or a professor's wife, there are evident distinctions in qualities, not at all evident to the casual person who discusses automobiles, wines, old masters, republicans, and college faculties. But in our public opinions few can be expert, while life is, as Mr. Bernard Shaw has made plain, so short. Those who are expert are so on only a few topics. Even among the expert soldiers, as we learned during the war, expert cavalrymen were not necessarily brilliant with trench warfare and tanks. Indeed, sometimes a little expertness on a small topic may simply exaggerate our normal human habit of trying to squeeze into our stereotypes all that can be squeezed, and of casting into outer darkness that which does not fit. Whatever we recognize as familiar, we tend, if we are not very careful, to visualize with the aid of images already in our mind. Thus, in the American view of progress and success, there is a definite picture of human nature and of society. It is the kind of human nature and the kind of society which logically produce the kind of progress that is regarded as ideal. And then, when we seek to describe or explain actually successful men, and events that have really happened, we read back into them the qualities that are presupposed in the stereotypes. These qualities were standardized rather innocently by the older economists. They set out to describe the social system under which they lived, and found it too complicated for words. So they constructed what they sincerely hoped was a simplified diagram, not so different in principle and in veracity from the parallelogram with legs and head, in a child's drawing of a complicated cow. The scheme consisted of a capitalist who had diligently saved capital from his labor, an entrepreneur who conceived a socially useful demand and organized a factory, a collection of workmen who freely contracted, take it or leave it, for their labor, a landlord, and a group of consumers who bought in the cheapest market, 
those goods which by the ready use of the pleasure-pain calculus they knew would give them the most pleasure. The model worked. The kind of people which the model assumed living in the sort of world the model assumed invariably cooperated harmoniously in the books where the model was described. With modification and embroidery, this pure fiction, used by economists to simplify their thinking, was retailed and popularized until for large sections of the population it prevailed as the economic mythology of the day. It supplied a standard version of capitalist, promoter, worker and consumer in a society that was naturally more bent on achieving success than on explaining it. The buildings which rose and the bank accounts which accumulated were evidence that the stereotype of how the thing had been done was accurate. And those who benefited most by success came to believe they were the kind of men they were supposed to be. No wonder that the candid friends of successful men, when they read the official biography and the obituary, have to restrain themselves from asking whether this is indeed their friend. To the vanquished and the victims, the official portraiture was, of course, unrecognizable. For while those who exemplified progress did not often pause to inquire whether they had arrived according to the route laid down by the economists, or by some other just as credible, the unsuccessful people did inquire. Quote, no one, end quote, says William James, footnote, The Letters of William James, volume 1, page 65, quote, sees further into a generalization than his own knowledge of detail extends, end quote. The captains of industry saw in the great trusts monuments of their success. Their defeated competitors saw the monuments of their failure. So the captains expounded the economies and virtues of big business, asked to be let alone, said they were the agents of prosperity and the developers of trade. The vanquished insisted upon the wastes and brutalities of the trusts, and called loudly upon the Department of Justice to free business from conspiracies. In the same situation one side saw progress, economy, and a splendid development, the other reaction, extravagance, and a restraint of trade. Volumes of statistics, anecdotes about the real truth and the inside truth, the deeper and the larger truth, were published to prove both sides of the argument. For when a system of stereotypes is well fixed, our attention is called to those facts which support it, and diverted from those which contradict. So perhaps it is because they are attuned to find it, that kindly people discover so much reason for kindness, malicious people so much malice. We speak quite accurately of seeing through rose-colored spectacles, or with a jaundiced eye. If, as Philip Little once wrote of a distinguished professor, we see life as through a class darkly, our stereotypes of what the best people and the lower classes are like will not be contaminated by understanding. What is alien will be rejected, what is different will fall upon unseeing eyes. We do not see what our eyes are not accustomed to take into account. Sometimes consciously, more often without knowing it, we are impressed by those facts which fit our philosophy. This philosophy is a more or less organized series of images for describing the unseen world, but not only for describing it, for judging it as well. And therefore, the stereotypes are loaded with preference, suffused with affection or dislike, attached to fears, lusts, strong wishes, pride, and hope. Whatever invokes the stereotype is judged with the appropriate sentiment. Except where we deliberately keep prejudice in suspense, we do not study a man and judge him to be bad. We see a bad man. We see a dewy morn, a blushing maiden, a sainted priest, a humorless Englishman, a dangerous red, a carefree bohemian, a lazy Hindu, 
a wily Oriental, a dreaming Slav, a volatile Irishman, a greedy Jew, a 100% American. In the workday world that is often the real judgment, long in advance of the evidence, and it contains within itself the conclusion which the evidence is pretty certain to confirm. Neither justice, nor mercy, nor truth, enter into such a judgment, for the judgment has preceded the evidence. Yet a people without prejudices, a people with altogether neutral vision, is so unthinkable in any civilization of which it is useful to think, that no scheme of education could be based upon that ideal. Prejudice can be detected, discounted, and refined, but so long as finite men must compress into a short schooling, preparation for dealing with a vast civilization, they must carry pictures of it around with them, and have prejudices. The quality of their thinking and doing will depend on whether those prejudices are friendly, friendly to other people, to other ideas, whether they evoke love of what is felt to be positively good, rather than hatred of what is not contained in their version of the good. Morality, good taste, and good form first standardize and then emphasize certain of these underlying prejudices. As we adjust ourselves to our code, we adjust the facts we see to that code. Rationally, the facts are neutral to all our views of right and wrong. Actually, our canons determine greatly what we shall perceive and how. For a moral code is a scheme of conduct applied to a number of typical instances. To behave as the code directs is to serve whatever purpose the code pursues. It may be God's will, or the king's, individual salvation in a good, solid, three-dimensional paradise, success on earth, or the service of mankind. In any event, the makers of the code fix upon certain typical situations, and then by some form of reasoning or intuition, deduce the kind of behavior which would produce the aim they acknowledge. The rules apply where they apply. But in daily living how does a man know whether his predicament is the one the lawgiver had in mind? He is told not to kill, but if his children are attacked, may he kill to stop a killing? The Ten Commandments are silent on the point. Therefore, Around every code there is a cloud of interpreters who deduce more specific cases. Suppose, then, that the doctors of the law decide that he may kill in self-defense. For the next man, the doubt is almost as great. How does he know that he is defining self-defense correctly, or that he has not misjudged the facts, imagined the attack, and is really the aggressor? Perhaps he has provoked the attack, but what is a provocation? Exactly these confusions infected the minds of most Germans in August 1914. Far more serious in the modern world than any difference of moral code is the difference in the assumptions about facts to which the code is applied. Religious, moral, and political formula are nothing like so far apart as the facts assumed by their votaries. Useful discussion, then, instead of comparing ideals, re-examines the visions of the facts. Thus, the rule that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you rests on the belief that human nature is uniform. Mr. Bernard Shaw's statement that you should not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you, because their tastes may be different, rests on the belief that human nature is not uniform. The maxim that competition is the life of trade consists of a whole tome of assumptions about economic motives, industrial relations, and the working of a particular commercial system. The claim that America will never have a merchant marine, unless it is privately owned and managed, assumes a certain proved connection between a certain kind of profit-making and incentive. The justification by the Bolshevik propagandist of the dictatorship, espionage, and the terror, 
because, quote, every state is an apparatus of violence, end quote. Footnote, C, Two Years of Conflict on the Internal Front, published by the Russian Socialist Federated Soviet Republic, Moscow, 1920. Translated by Malcolm W. Davis for the New York Evening Post, January 15, 1921. Is a historical judgment, the truth of which is by no means self-evident to a non-communist. At the core of every moral code, there is a picture of human nature, a map of the universe, and a version of history. To human nature, of the sort conceived, in a universe of the kind imagined, after a history so understood, the rules of the code apply. So far as the facts of personality, of the environment and of memory are different, by so far the rules of the code are different to apply with success. Now every moral code has to conceive human psychology, the material world, and tradition some way or other. But in the codes that are under the influence of science, the conception is known to be a hypothesis, whereas in the codes that come unexamined from the past, or bubble up from the caverns of the mind, the conception is not taken as a hypothesis demanding proof or contradiction, but as a fiction accepted without question. In one case, man is humble about his beliefs, because he knows they are tentative and incomplete. In the other, he is dogmatic, because his belief is a completed myth. The moralist who submits to the scientific discipline knows that though he does not know everything, he is in the way of knowing something. The dogmatist, using a myth, believes himself to share part of the insight of omniscience, though he lacks the criteria by which to tell truth from error. For the distinguishing mark of a myth is that truth and error, fact and fable, report and fantasy, are all on the same plane of credibility. The myth is, then, not necessarily false. It might happen to be wholly true, it may happen to be partly true. If it has affected human conduct a long time, it is almost certain to contain much that is profoundly and importantly true. What a myth never contains is the critical power to separate its truths from its errors. For that power comes only by realizing that no human opinion, whatever its supposed origin, is too exalted for the test of evidence, that every opinion is only somebody's opinion. And if you ask why the test of evidence is preferable to any other, there is no answer unless you are willing to use the test in order to test it. The statement is, I think, susceptible of overwhelming proof that moral codes assume a particular view of the facts. Under the term moral codes, I include all kinds, personal, family, economic, professional, legal, patriotic, and international. At the center of each there is a pattern of stereotypes about psychology, sociology, and history. The same view of human nature, institutions, or tradition rarely persists through all our codes. Compare, for example, the economic and the patriotic codes. There is a war supposed to affect all alike. Two men are partners in business. One enlists, the other takes a war contract. The soldier sacrifices everything, perhaps even his life. He is paid a dollar a day, and no one says, no one believes, that you could make a better soldier out of him by any form of economic incentive. That motive disappears out of his human nature. The contractor sacrifices very little, is paid a handsome profit over costs, and few say or believe that he would produce the munitions if there was no economic incentive. That may be unfair to him. The point is that the accepted patriotic code assumes one kind of human nature, the commercial code, another. 
and the codes are probably founded on true expectations to this extent. When a man adopts a certain code, he tends to exhibit the kind of human nature which the code demands. That is one reason why it is so dangerous to generalize about human nature. A loving father can be a sour boss, an earnest municipal reformer, and a rapacious jingo abroad. His family life, his business career, his politics, and his foreign policy rest on totally different versions of what others are like, and of how he should act. These versions differ by codes in the same person, the codes differ somewhat among persons in the same social set, differ widely as between social sets, and between two nations, or two colors, may differ to the point where there is no common assumption whatever. That is why two people professing the same stock of religious beliefs can go to war. The element of their belief which determines conduct is that view of the facts which they assume. That is where codes enter so subtly and so pervasively into the making of public opinion. The orthodox theory holds that a public opinion constitutes a moral judgment on a group of facts. The theory I am suggesting is that, in the present state of education, a public opinion is primarily a moralized and codified version of the facts. I am arguing that the pattern of stereotypes at the center of our codes largely determines what group of facts we shall see and in what light we shall see them. That is why, with the best will in the world, the news policy of a journal tends to support its editorial policy, why a capitalist sees one set of facts and certain aspects of human nature, literally, sees them, his socialist opponent another set and other aspects, and why each regards the other as unreasonable or perverse, when the real difference between them is a difference of perception. That difference is imposed by the difference between the capitalist and socialist pattern of stereotypes. Quote, there are no classes in America, end quote, writes an American editor. Quote, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles, end quote, says the Communist Manifesto. If you have the editor's pattern in your mind, you will see vividly the facts that confirm it, vaguely and ineffectively those that contradict. If you have the communist pattern, you will not only look for different things, but you will see with a totally different emphasis what you and the editor happen to see in common. And since my moral system rests on my accepted version of the facts, he who denies either my moral judgment or my version of the facts is to me perverse, alien, and dangerous. How shall I account for him? The opponent has always to be explained, and the last explanation that we ever look for is that he sees a different set of facts. Such an explanation we avoid, because it saps the very foundation of our own assurance that we have seen life steadily and seen it whole. It is only when we are in the habit of recognizing our opinions as a partial experience seen through our stereotypes that we become truly tolerant of an opponent. Without that habit, we believe in the absolutism of our own vision, and consequently in the treacherous character of all opposition. For while men are willing to admit that there are two sides to a question, they do not believe that there are two sides to what they regard as a fact. And they never do believe it until after long critical education, they are fully conscious of how second-hand and subjective is their apprehension of their social data. So where two factions see vividly each its own aspect, and contrive their own explanations of what they see, it is almost impossible for them to credit each other with honesty. If the pattern fits their experience at a crucial point, they no longer look upon it as an interpretation. They look upon it as reality. It may not resemble the reality, 
except that it culminates in a conclusion which fits a real experience. I may represent my trip from New York to Boston by a straight line on a map, just as a man may regard his triumph as the end of a straight and narrow path. The road by which I actually went to Boston may have involved many detours, much turning and twisting, just as his road may have involved much besides pure enterprise, labor, and thrift. But provided I reach Boston and he succeeds, the airline and the straight path will serve as ready-made charts. Only when somebody tries to follow them, and does not arrive, do we have to answer objections. If we insist on our charts, and he insists on rejecting them, we soon tend to regard him as a dangerous fool, and he to regard us as liars and hypocrites. Thus, we gradually paint portraits of each other. For the opponent presents himself as the man who says, Evil, be thou my good. He is an annoyance who does not fit into the scheme of things. Nevertheless, he interferes. And since that scheme is based in our minds on incontrovertible fact fortified by irresistible logic, some place has to be found for him in the scheme. Rarely in politics or industrial disputes is a place made for him by the simple admission that he has looked upon the same reality and seen another aspect of it. That would shake the whole scheme. To the Italians in Paris, Fiuma was Italian. It was not merely a city that would be desirable to include within the Italian kingdom. It was Italian. They fixed their whole mind upon the Italian majority within the legal boundaries of the city itself. The American delegates, having seen more Italians in New York than there are in Fiuma, without regarding New York as Italian, fixed their eyes on Fiuma as a central European port of entry. They saw vividly the Yugoslavs in the suburbs and the non-Italian hinterland. Some of the Italians in Paris were therefore in need of a convincing explanation of the American perversity. They found it in a rumor which started, no one knows where, that an influential American diplomat was in the snares of a Yugoslav mistress. She had been seen, he had been seen, at Versailles just off the boulevard, the villa with the large trees. This is a rather common way of explaining away opposition. In their more libelous forms, such charges rarely reach the printed page, and a Roosevelt may have to wait years, or a Harding, months, before he can force an issue, and end a whispering campaign that has reached into every circle of talk. Public men have to endure a fearful amount of poisonous clubroom, dinner table, boudoir slander, repeated, elaborated, chuckled over, and regarded as delicious. While this sort of thing is, I believe, less prevalent in America than in Europe, yet rare is the American official about whom somebody is not repeating a scandal. Out of the opposition we make villains and conspiracies. If the prices go up unmercifully, the profiteers have conspired. If the newspapers misrepresent the news, there is a capitalist plot. If the rich are too rich, they have been stealing. If a closely fought election is lost, the electorate was corrupted. If a statesman does something of which you disapprove, he has been bought or influenced by some discreditable person. If working men are restless, they are the victims of agitators. If they are restless over wide areas, there is a conspiracy on foot. If you do not produce enough airplanes, it is the work of spies. If there is trouble in Ireland, it is German or Bolshevik gold. And if you go stark, staring mad, looking for plots, you will see all strikes, the plum plan, Irish rebellion, Islamic unrest, the restoration of King Constantine, the League of Nations, Mexican disorder, the movement to reduce armaments, 
Sunday movies, short skirts, evasion of the liquor laws, Negro self-assertion, as subplots under some grandiose plot engineered by either Moscow, Rome, the Freemasons, the Japanese, or the elders of Zion. End of chapter 9